Omaha, somewhere in middle America. We're going to get right to the heart of the matter of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little Berkshire Hathaway, shall we? Sure. The marathon. We're going to get to the Q and A in a second. I do just want to point out. I mean, I think it's a sign of what an event the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting is, and how much attention is paid to the marathon Q and A session that Buffett and Charlie Munger do. That. We basically all just, as an investing community, just basically missed the fact that they reported first quarter earnings. That is so secondary. It's yeah, just like, oh, by the way, the results were better than expected. Geico is profitable again after yeah. a year and a half of not being profitable. Berkshire Hathaway now has $130 billion in cash. So, that aside, they're in a good spot, Chris. They're in a good spot. <laughs> they're in a good spot. Let's get to some of the highlights from the Q and A session. And the the thing that stood out to me, both as a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder and as a shareholder of Apple, is the flowers that Buffett was throwing at Apple, <laughs> basically saying, "This is the best business we." Invest in well, and yeah, I mean, you know, for the longest time, they they really steered clear of quote unquote tech stocks because they just felt like it was it was outside of their circle of competence, so to speak. And Apple, I think, you know, Apple transcends that. I mean, I have always said Apple is literally a company could stamp its brand on a rock and sell three million, no questions asked. I mean, it is that powerful. And I'm not even kidding. I absolutely believe that. The iRock. Um, people would say, hey, it's a special rock. It's an iRock. It's got some certain quality or property that that brand power alone is is phenomenal. It is it is something that you just don't see every day, and and then you add to that the fact that they make really good tech, right? They make really good stuff. I mean, that is just a, a one-two combo that is just really really um, formidable, especially over long periods of time. And and obviously we've seen that through the financial performance of the company. It is just unsurpassed. You just can't think of many, many things in our life that have had the impact on society as a whole as something like the iPhone, right? And and he even made that point, I think, in, in the conversation where you know you've got you've got a family that is is weighing the phone versus a second car, right? Well they're they're taking the phone. Um, I mean that phone is just integral to everything that we do. And and that that obviously is not going to change. I think the biggest challenge they have is is coming up with that next sort of lightning in a bottle product that's that's not so easily done but in the meantime what they've really done well is built this collection of really good products along the way that that the sum of those parts really does i mean it's it's not something that you know, takes the place of what the iPhone is doing. I mean, this is still a phone and a services company. I mean, that's seventy six percent of the overall revenue that this business makes right now. But they do a lot of things well, and I think that it makes a lot of sense when he says it's the best business that they've ever owned because I think it's the best business that a lot of people have ever owned. And in reference to the share price, he talked about it as he sounds very much like an investor who owns shares of Apple and is thinking about buying more shares of Apple. Well, I think that would be a reasonable thing to do. I mean, I was looking through the quarterly results here recently, and I mean, when you see 
the performance that the business is chalking up today, and again, we look at it primarily through the lens of a phone and a services company. Um, but but another another story that we've talked a lot about with Apple here over the past several years is China. Not only from the perspective of the consumer, but also from the production side, right? And, and Apple is slowly but surely diversifying their supply chain away from China and more towards India. And and I think that the point there with India is is even more uh, more more powerful from the consumer side because when you look at India today, it's around one and a half percent of Apple's total. Total business, right? Well, you look at China. China's around 20% of Apple's total business, right? It's about six billion dollars that they're bringing in from India versus something like uh, some some crazy number from China. I mean, it's 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 to the point now where you start to see the opportunity that could exist within India. And, and granted, this is is a much longer. Uh, longer sort of time frame that you have to consider, but it shows you the potential there. And, and when you then further further look into that, and you see that Indian consumers are are becoming more and more willing to pay higher prices for their phones, well, that plays right in Apple's wheelhouse as well. So it just goes to show you the opportunity that's still out there on the table for Apple from a geographic perspective. And, and I certainly understand why he'd be considering adding more. We knew Buffett was going to get questions about banks and the banking industry. And he really seemed kind of frustrated by the communication that's been going on, kind of from all parties. I mean, he, you know, didn't uh, didn't hold back from taking some shots at the way banks like First Republic had been managed, but he he made the broader point of look, fear is contagious, and pretty much every party involved could be doing a better job of assuring people like hey your deposits are safe. It definitely feels that way. I mean, folks folks like us here, we we talk about this stuff a lot so we kind of know what the deal is. But but your everyday American out there working the 9 to 5 and and really focused on that paycheck. I mean, this not stuff that really crosses their radar all that often. And it's very understandable. You want to make sure that your money is safe and it it was astounding. I mean, the more regulators seem to try to help, the more panic they create. And and I mean, it just why can't they follow the George Costanza model, Chris, and just do the opposite? <laughs> For whatever reason, they just can't seem to make that work. But I'm not just blaming regulators. I mean, clearly, this is this is on management as well, from from you know, the executive suites to the boards. I mean, this is all the way around. Not only putting these banks in this type of a position, uh, but but further the the communication that that uh, really we watched play out over the last month plus. It's just it's just been less than ideal. We always we always need to be talking about this stuff because I think that's the one way we can serve folks is to help educate. Let them know that this is all going to be okay. But but yeah, by the same token, I mean you see that the panic that has been created, and and once you said it, it's contagious. Once it gets out there, it's really really difficult to contain. We were chatting earlier today. Um, sounds like you enjoyed Charlie Munger's uh, comments about diversification. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I do. I mean, I, it's always interesting to to sort of square. His comments with the way that we like to invest here, right? Because because really diversification is a very good thing. I mean, I, I want to lead off with that. But there is a point where you can become too diversified to where you're really starting to introduce some things in your portfolio you probably shouldn't even have. Now he he did he did 
make sure to point out that because this is what they do for a living, they tend to make fewer mistakes, right? They're better investors than a lot of us because they've been at this for a while. But I think one of the reasons why they're better investors too is they realize they don't need to be the smartest guys in the room. They realize that they're not the smartest guys in the room, right? And that's that's kind of the point, really. It's kind of know your limits, know what you know, and know what you don't know. And you know, I mean, I, I we I said to you earlier before we started taping here. I mean, you you look at some of these social networks. I mean, Twitter's a good example just because it's got such a strong, you know, fintech sort of of audience there. But it does feel like it it's kind of it's kind of a contest there to see who can be the smartest <laughs> smartest guy. And, and that you know the network effects really that that start to snowball. Um, I I think it's really important just to remember know what you don't know. And when you see something when you you know this is just outside of your circle. I mean, you have two choices. You can choose to dig into it and try to learn more, or you can say, you know what, that's just not really worth my time. My time is better served maybe getting a little bit smarter about something that I know really well already. And and I think that was kind of his point there is is you know, knowing what you don't know, diversification is good, but at a point it can start to be bad and um, he just puts it a little bit more bluntly, I guess. <laughs> That's why we love Munger. That's right. He's 99. He's earned the right to be blunt. That's right. Jason Moser, thanks for being there. Thank you. We're sticking with the Berkshire Hathaway meeting in our next segment, because this morning on the Motley Fool live video stream, Nick Seipel, Jim Gillies, and Deidre Woolard shared their takeaways and observations, including whether it actually is harder to be a value investor today, or if that's just the case for Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. So, Jim, since you were there, what was the vibe of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting this year? I understand you've been you've been to some of the meetings in the past as well. So, maybe how does it compare to the vibe uh, to previous meetings? Very optimistic, very much a party. It's very much a lot of old friends getting together, even if you've never met these old friends. It, it's uh, there's a there's a very definite sense of community. Uh, I was going in with a little bit of trepidation this year. Let's be honest. Warren is 92, and I've thought the last few meetings he's been slowing down. I thought the last few times I've seen him on CNBC recently, he's been slowing down. Uh, Charlie is 99 um, and uh, starting to look at. Um, uh, I was concerned, and I, I part of uh, to be perfectly modern, part of my rationale for going was I this could be the last meeting of uh, of the Warren and Charlie show, and I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, I thought they were both far sharper than they've been the last couple of years when I've been uh, watching virtually, and of course, for a couple of years when we all had to watch virtually. Uh, I thought they were sharper. I, I thought Charlie was especially sharp, like rapier sharp. He, he, he cut a few, cut a few uh, sacred cows there. They did slow down in the afternoon, but then again, so did everyone else in the, uh, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny there was a member of the fool contingent who may have nodded off uh, midway through the afternoon, and we had the picture. I thought it was a, it was a good meeting. If you've watched any of these, you've seen any of these over the past. The questions aren't terribly new, so uh, there's a lot of stuff that's that's uh, a lot of repeats um, from years prior and questions and answers. Uh, Buffett will always talk about you know I think the, uh, the one one very common thing I think I've seen practically every time. What country does Buffett say you should bet on for capitalism? 
America, you know, buy America. I, I, I'm thinking back to, uh, was it 99 or 2000 when the article in Fortune magazine was buy America? I am, you know, so that was very, that was very popular. Uh, he, Buff, Buffett has, uh, also mastered the art, I think of occasionally answering the question he wants to answer rather than the question you just asked, uh, which, which I love. And so when, when people wanted to talk about AI, naturally Buffett talked about the risk of nuclear and he did compare AI. So like a, a nuclear, some things can't be uninvented. Some things can't be undone once they are known and understood. And he mentioned AI there. And then of course went on a bit of a talk about uh, nuclear and not in the power sense, Nick, which of course what we're interested in, but in the, um, shall we say the weapons potential, they, they talk about a little bit about value investing. Charlie, I thought was surprisingly dour uh, about uh, the future for value investors. Uh, they were, they were both kind of, um, they were both kind of, well, you know, value investors might have to get uh, used to, lower returns because there's so many people doing it. I think there was some allusion to AI as well. I, I don't have my notes in front of me here and, and fools, Nick and I'll be doing a session together later today uh, for recording. It'll probably go out to various places about more digging in deep. So I don't destroy the entire show here today talking about this, but just talking about how value investors would have to maybe accept lower returns because there's so many people, there's so much competition. That was Charlie's assertion. Uh, Warren disagreed with him somewhat, and I vehemently disagree with Charlie Munger. And, and I love Charlie Munger. In fact, I might like Charlie more than Warren, frankly, um, because he's just more my jam, very acerbic and very kind of, you know. And, and so, yeah, no, I, I, I very much uh, disagreed with that assertion. Uh, but then again, I was never... Um, less than lower returns than what I would be my question, you know, like, uh, uh, multi-baggers in 18 months, eh, you know, that's, that's difficult to do for everything, including growth or, or whatever, but I'm not sure I'm buying it. Um, they talked a lot about deals. They had a Jeet and uh, Jane and uh, Greg Abel in the morning who were uh, talking about the challenges for, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe and, uh, um, Berkshire Hathaway energy as well as, as Geico. Um, I, I thought it was a really well-rounded meeting, uh, met a lot of fools there, a lot of uh, folks I know, you know via other channels as well who may or may not have a connection to the fool. We had a lot of BFOF show up, which was uh, fantastic. We had a impromptu gathering on the Friday at four o'clock and a lot of BFOFs uh, made the trek, which we are um, still kind of stunned and humbled by, frankly. Um, but it might be easier if we just kind of maybe move to a Q&A rather than me just kind of riffing on the meeting, if that's okay. Obviously, we got five hours of of Warren and Charlie. We're not going to talk about all five hours, but maybe a thing yeah, God, that, no. that, that that stood out. <laughs> I have one that, that that Jim, you know, mentioned. So this idea of of you know Charlie Munger says, hey, maybe we should uh, be expecting lower returns over the over the long term uh, uh, for value investors than you have seen previously. And Warren Buffett, the other side of that of that kind of exchange was the one that really popped out to me. And he said, you know, I, I think. He said, quote, what gives you opportunities is other people doing dumb things. During the 58 years we've been running Berkshire, I would say there's been a great increase in the number of people doing dumb things, and they do big dumb things. And the reason they continue to do it to some extent is because they can get money from people so much easier than when they started. So there's two sides 
of that coin. So Charlie Munger is saying you should expect lower returns over a longer period of time because there's lots of money looking for returns in the market, creating lots of competition uh, for returns. Whereas in the past, you know, uh, you know, Ben Graham before them, but Warren and, and Charlie, Charlie, uh, could find companies that nobody was paying attention to trading for for less than what you could go, you know, uh, sell them for cash out in the market. Now uh, there's a lot of screeners that would probably pick those things out, uh, and and if they're trading for that uh, level, there's a reason for that. Um, at least for for some, there's other reasons. Jim is grinning. There, there's other reasons about liquidity and things like that to create opportunities. But there's certainly more people looking for opportunities than there would have been in the past, and more tools to do it uh, versus just flipping through the Moody's manual. But what Buffett is saying is that it's not. It's not the fact that there's lots of people looking for opportunities. It's the fact that there are cognitive biases among those large groups of people that 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 create those opportunities. And I think there's a tweet that both Jim and I shared that our, our old friend John Rotanti uh, put out there, just quoting Warren Buffett as well. It says the investing public does not learn a lot over a long does not learn much is the direct direct quote. So you know Munger is looking at the amount of cash floating around in the system, and Buffett is looking at the people. And while the 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 way people go about investing and things like that has changed over time. People are still flawed in very predictable ways, and I think that's what creates opportunities in markets. That's kind of why I come out on the the Warren Buffett side of things. But but those are two very valid perspectives to have. That there is a lot more money chasing investing opportunities than there would have been fifty years ago. But they're the same types of people that are that are you know making the same types of mistakes that uh, you can look to uh, you know um, find opportunities in. The, the way that, I that, like to those are, that's, that's an exchange that I thought was interesting. Yeah, no, that, that that's that is excellent, and I that is, I, I I don't often disagree with Munger. I'll put it that way, but I vehemently disagree with Munger on this one, which is a nice feeling for me. The idea, I don't care how much money is out there, I really don't, because there's so many opportunities, particularly in small cap space. The smaller the unloved, which you know, Buffett and Munger and Berkshire are going for. You know, they buy, they have to go for the elephant gun or they have to bring out the elephant gun. They have to go for the large because something, uh, there, there, there is a company in Canada called Home Capital Group that a few years ago got into trouble. They were down 65, 70% in a day. Uh, and they're, 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 they're in my, uh, after they had, uh, they had some issues. They were, they were trailing down for a while, but they had some issues. And I have, I have a small club of companies that got, that get pummeled 40, 50, 60% in a day. And those are, those are kind of, um, those are fires I like to run to. Uh, like I'm, I'm not talking bank, put banks over here, fools, but companies that, 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 ha, you know, we're going to take leverage out of it, but companies that have a very bad quarter or perception of bad quarter and get sold off fail 40, 50, 60% in a day. I have a, I have a short list of those and they're like six and six month and one year returns are outstanding because it scares people away. Why? Because people are herd animals. Sorry, I, I, that might not be terribly appropriate to say people are herd animals. That's why Peter Lynch can put up a, what, 13 year track record of 29.2% annualized. And the average investor, apocryphal perhaps, but the stories range, the average investor in his fund annualized it about four because people buy at the top, they sell at the bottom, uh, they wait for it to rebound and they go back and buy at the top again. And, you know, I, I will argue, and I think, uh, uh, I, I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Uh, I, you know, the, the best thing about trying, the best thing you can do as an investor is try to, you know, the, the zebra who breaks from the herd is dinner, but investing, we're not zebras. 
you know, and investing shouldn't be a herd animal sport. And if you are willing to not be a herd animal and you're willing to go to, you know, to places where other people aren't willing to go to, that is the essence of value investing. And I still think you're going to do all right. Deidre, any, any exchanges or, or questions that, that, that popped out to you as, as extra interesting uh, from the weekend or uh, anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to be a Munger fan as well, just because Warren will talk for a long time and then Munger will say like one sentence and it's just like it's just like a perfect little jab. Uh, yeah, I, I, the thing I disagree with him about, and and he's done this before, Munger, about the diversification. About you know that's that's something he tends to to keep hitting on is like you don't need to invest in a wide variety of things. You just need to have two or three good ideas. I, I tend to disagree with that, but maybe that's because I don't trust my own ideas as as much as I should. But I I tend to like to cast a, a wider net. But overall, one of the things I love from watching this, and I. I know they do it to like pull on our heartstrings, but it gets me every damn time is when they have kids asking questions and they had, they had a fair dose of that this time. They had a lot of kids asking about, about climate change and about, you know, about the future of, of the country and, and all of that. So that was one of the things that I know why they do it, but yeah, I'm still a sucker for it. And just the idea that some of the kids that were asking questions, this was their like third or fourth meeting and they're like 13. I'm like, yes, that, that, that makes me very encouraged for the future. Remember, Motley Fool Live is available to members of any Motley Fool service. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.